Bible or a copy of the Bible or a device or whatever you're looking at, Ezekiel chapter 2 is where we're going to start this morning. Ezekiel chapter 2, that is in the Old Testament. I know you can find it. Uh, look in the table of contents if you need to. But Ezekiel chapter 2 is where we'll get started. So I've mentioned before in different lessons that back in 2011, my wife and I, we spent some time in Rwanda, Africa. We spent about half a year. Our purpose in going there was to work with street kids. Uh, Kigali, Rwanda has a huge population for street kids, and we just wanted to show up and see where God was working and try to do something about that. Pretty quickly, after arriving in Rwanda, we met a lady named Marie Claire. Now, Marie Claire was a, a woman that loved God, and she, uh, she was a Bible class teacher at her church. So she was teaching Bible class, but she would notice week after week that these street kids, these homeless kids would come and they would listen to the lesson outside of the window because they didn't feel comfortable or welcome coming inside because they were so filthy. And that bothered her. So she started reaching out to these kids and she realized that they're, they're not getting any sort of education. So she started a school for street kids. And so we met Marie Claire and she invited us to come and to be a part of that school and to teach on a weekly basis so we were getting to know her and the students and some of the other teachers, and we were having a meeting one day, and she came up with this idea that we all agreed upon, that on a Saturday evening, we would throw kind of a, a makeshift type of banquet, a feast for all these kids, because they, you know, they don't get to eat much. Maybe they eat every other day, and when they do eat, it's just a little bit of rice or, or a piece of bread or something like that. So let's just throw them a feast. She said she would provide the food. So we all showed up on a Saturday evening. There was about 75 to 100 street kids. And they were so excited. They, were, they had been told they had this feast coming. And they were waiting. And they were there on time. And we were there on time. But Marie Claire was not there. So about 30 minutes go by. And we're starting to think, uh-oh. You know, she's promised these kids this huge feast. And something's happened. And she's not showing up. So we were trying to entertain them. Uh, there was a lot of singing going on, and then finally she shows up, and when she shows up, she's in these trucks, and there's all these random people that I've never seen before showing up, and they have these huge bowls of rice and beans and vegetables, and here's a little picture of these huge bowls, and she just, they just keep bringing more and more in, and I'm like, man, there is so much food, and these kids ate, and you could see their plates. It may not be something we would choose if we went to a restaurant, but you see the potatoes and the rice and the beans and the vegetables, and they have peanut sauce, which I don't know how that sounds to you, but it is delicious when you mix it all together. It's a lot of carbs, but these kids ate, and they ate so much that night, and they were so excited and so happy to have this feast. And you can see a little bit of this excitement in their faces. Look at that guy at the bottom corner there. I don't know how well you can see that, but his face is just like, he's overwhelmed with excitement. So after this feast was over, I went and I stood outside the classroom, and a lot of the kids were coming outside, and their bellies were extended from eating so much, and they had never felt that feeling of just being so full before. And they were all patting their belly, and they were coming up to me, and they'd pat their belly and then pat my belly and say, I'm so fat. You know, it's like they were excited to feel like me for once. And they were, I was like, it's starting to hurt my feelings a little bit. But that was, I mean, that was their take on it. It was like, hey, we're rewarded, kind of like you are. You get this feast. You can go to the next slide if you'd like. So as Americans, you know, we get to eat. 
We could feast like that every meal if we wanted to, but there's people all over the world that don't have those privileges and luxuries like we do. But this morning I want to talk about feasting, but not necessarily feasting on, on food like that, but feasting on the Word of God. So I'm going to propose from part one of this lesson that there is a need for Bible feasting. I have heard countless Bible professors from schools like ACU and Harding make comments that as the decades go by, the freshmen that show up for their freshman Bible class seem to know the Bible less and less. That's the trend. You know, maybe several decades ago when freshmen would show up, they'd been rooted in a church and taught the Bible since the time they were little children, so they were already kind of a step ahead, but now you just have to backtrack because people just know the Bible less and less. And in our country and in our churches, there's just a need. There's always a need, I think, no matter where you're at on the journey, to just keep loving God and falling in love with His Word and feasting on His Word. I ask you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. I'm going to read from Ezekiel chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, through a little bit of chapter 3. And let me give you just a little bit of background. Ezekiel uh, was training to become a priest in Jerusalem, was taken as a captive, as a prisoner, to Babylon. So Ezekiel finds himself 500 miles away from home, and instead of becoming a priest, God calls him to become a prophet which is a little bit different. And this is what we're picking up in here in in chapter 2. This is a part of God's call to Ezekiel, but he says some very strange words to him. Starting at verse 8, he says, But you, mortal, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. I looked, and a hand was stretched out to me, and and a written scroll was in it. He spread it before me, It had writing on the front and the back, and written on it were words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Chapter 3, verse 1. He said to me, O mortal, eat what is offered to you. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. He said to me, Mortal, eat this scroll I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and in my mouth it was as sweet as honey. Okay, this is, I'm going to first of all say this passage is, is weird. And it's intentionally weird. I think there's a lot of things in the Bible that are intentionally weird because it provokes thought and further study. Uh, I don't think that God is telling Ezekiel, I want you to physically eat a scroll. I mean, I think we could all maybe agree that there's some symbolism here. Take these words, the word of the Lord that comes to Ezekiel, not in Jerusalem, not in the land of Israel, but far away from home in Babylon, but God is still with them and still present with them in Babylon. And he's saying, consume my word. Feast on these words that I'm going to give you. I'm calling you to speak a tough word to your own people. But before you can speak a tough word to them, you need to first feast on my word. And Ezekiel is not the only place in the Bible where we had this image of eating scrolls and eating the words of God. Jeremiah, the prophet, in chapter 15, verse 16, he says that he took God's words and he ate them and they were sweet to his mouth. And you look at the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, verse 103, the psalmist says that he tasted the word of God. And again, it was sweet. It tasted sweet. And we flip over to the New Testament. 
We're told that the Word, capital W, is Jesus himself. The Word becomes flesh. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you want to be a part of this, you need to feast on me, on my flesh and my blood. John, and the revelation that was given to him in Revelation chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, John's told, take this scroll and eat it. And when you eat it, it will taste sweet, but it's going to come sour in your stomach when you digest it. So we have all these different images of prophets and great teachers who would eat and feast on the word that God would give them. A very strange image, but an important one. It kind of sets the tone for us to make sure that we have a steady diet of the word of God. This was Jesus' life. Jesus lived a life in a way that changes the world like nobody has ever seen it. But the driving force behind his life was part of his prayer life and his worship life, but it was also his life rooted in Scripture. When Jesus starts his ministry in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, he goes out to the wilderness. And he spends alone time with God for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's fasting. And then Satan comes to him to tempt him and says, Why don't you turn, use and abuse your powers, turn this stone into bread. And what does Jesus say to Satan? He quotes Scripture. In fact, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Man will not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That was Jesus' take on it. He quotes Scripture back to Satan. And the interesting thing in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 is that at one point, Satan quotes Scripture to Jesus. So you can also use Scripture and abuse it in ways that it wasn't meant to be. But Jesus believed that this feasting on the Word of God was what he needed. When I was younger, I received this Bible. I was probably 12 or 13 years old. I received this Bible. You see the cover's torn off. It only goes through Revelation 20, chapter chapter 20 now, because I'm losing pages in it. But I received this Bible for Christmas. So as a kid, you wake up Christmas morning, you get toys, and you get a Bible. It's kind of like, oh, thanks. You You know you're supposed to be happy about it, but it's not necessarily something you go and play with, right? So I got this Bible for Christmas. My parents gave it to me. Uh, and at one point during my life, I, in my prayer life, I don't know why I did this. I was a teenager. But I made a deal with God. And I promised God that I would read one chapter out of his word every day. Right, so now this Bible is old and worn out and falling apart. But I can flip through it and I can see where I would underline stuff. And it's interesting to see how those underlinings, they dramatically increase when I get to Paul's letters. Because half the time when I would read, I would read because I told God I would read it, but I kept thinking, I have no clue what this means. But I wanted to know what it meant. I would read, I would study, I would underline, but I would think, I kind of get this. Most of the time is when it was an ethical teaching, it's like, that makes sense, but some of this other stuff doesn't make sense. So I would take this Bible... And I would show up for Bible class, and no matter what the teacher was teaching on, at some point I'd raise my hand and say, over here in Second Thessalonians, this verse, you know, what does this mean? And I would always take us off track because I was trying to discover what God's Word meant. It was a formative time in my life to study this Bible, but it started to fall apart. So when I was late teens, early 20s, I asked for another Bible. My parents got me this Bible for Christmas. 
And now this Bible's falling apart. The cover's completely off. It's in a little bit better condition. This Bible's been with me to the Dominican Republic, to Tanzania, all over the United States. It's been all with me to different classes and in different backpacks. This Bible went with me on a lot of different journeys. So both of these NIV Bibles, with a blue cover, formed an important part of my life. And most of the time, it was just me, this Bible, a pen, and God. And that's really all we needed. And through that, something sparked in me. It's like there's something about these words that we're reading that's true. Like the scripture reading this morning, it's living and it's active. But I would read it, and I didn't fully understand. And this was before I knew anything about Hebrew or Greek or lexicons, or Bible dictionaries, or commentaries, or Christian literature. I didn't know about anything about any of that stuff. I just tried to study God's Word, and it was important for a time. But now these two Bibles sit on a shelf in my office, and the only time I look at them is when I preach this lesson, or when I move offices. Other than that, they just sit there. So it's kind of like they played an important role, and now that part is in the past. So now I preach out of a new revised standard version And I have a Bible app on my phone, and I can have access to all sorts of English versions. And I I get on my computer, and I can look on Bible Gateway, and I can pull up parallel copies. And, you know, studying the Bible nowadays as an adult looks a little different than when I was a child, and I'm still learning. But it's important that we never lose that love and that desire to feast on the Word of God, on God's Word. But... I do believe there's a slight problem, and so for the next few moments, I just want to do a little deconstruction, all right? So stay with me for a moment. Here's the problem. When it comes to interpreting the Bible and understanding what the Bible meant and what it means today, this is not as simple as we want it to be. I wanted it to be as simple as I just read it, and it's like black and white, this is what it says, and this is what I do, but I didn't always find that. You know, and some people say, I just read it literally and I do what it says. But it's not quite as simple as that. So let's talk about just the Bible for a moment. What is the Bible? What if I were to tell you the Bible is really not a book? It's a library of books, right? The Bible is a library of 66 books. How many are in the Old Testament? Somebody said 60, but I'm going to go with 39. 39 in the Old Testament. So if there's 66 total, that means there's how many in the New Testament? 27. So we refer to the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Scriptures, and the New Testament, which was written in Greek. It's a library of books, and it was written over, some would say, roughly around 1,500 years. So it's not like somebody just sat down in their office and over a few months wrote all this stuff out. It's a a library of 66 books. The Bible is multi-authored. Some have counted around 40 different authors have written these books. You know, read the New Testament, you see that a lot of Paul's letters make up a lot of the New Testament. But you read the Old Testament, you see these different writers throughout the Bible. And because it's multi-authored, some would say the Bible is both divine and human. It's divine because we believe it is the Word of God. It is God's Spirit. 
Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, this is probably a verse you know. He says, all Scripture is what? Inspired or God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting. And when Paul writes that at the time, there was no New Testament, so he's referring to the Hebrew Scriptures. But he believes that all Scripture is inspired by God, but yet God chose to work through human beings. So as you study God's Word, you know that God's Spirit is there. But then you also read, like Luke, and you say, okay, well, Luke had a special desire for the Gentiles and for the poor. And then you read Matthew, and you're like, okay, Matthew had his take on it, but he was writing more for the Jewish Christians, Jewish believers. And you can see these different human authors and the desires that they had. And you see God working through these different human beings. And because of that, we believe the Bible has eternal relevance, but also historical particularity. So that means that the Bible, and I hope that you believe this because I believe it, that the Word of God is living and active. It's relevant for us in this room. It's relevant for somebody across the world. It's relevant for somebody a thousand years ago or a thousand years from now. We believe that God's Spirit works through His Word. But just like me, when I study these, these books, these letters from Paul, I started to understand them a little bit better when I started to understand some of the culture and the history and some of the things going on around what I was reading because it was written by human beings at specific places and specific times. So when you start to understand that, it kind of unpacks it for you even further. The Bible is multilocational. I read somewhere where someone estimates that the Bible was written on 13 different countries and three different continents. So over 1,500 years, all these different places, all these different authors, there's different genres. You know, you read through the Bible, you read through the book of Genesis, and you get stories. Narrative stories, Jesus taught in parables, but then you quickly get to laws, and it has a very different feel to it. And you have prophets, and you have psalms, and you have poetry. You have apocalyptic literature like Daniel and Revelation. You have letters like Paul and John and Peter and their letters, and there's different genres. So it's helpful when you're reading to understand what the genre is that you're reading. And the Bible is a closed canon. And I'm not going to get too deep into this, but at some point, somewhere, the 27 books that are in the New Testament, different councils met and either agreed or didn't agree on what 27 books could be traced back to Jesus. It's called the apostolic secession. How could you go back to the apostles and trace them back directly to Jesus? And those were considered the authoritative texts that were included in the 27 books that we have in the New Testament. And the canon was already closed by the time Jesus came around for the Old Testament. So in a quick nutshell, there's the Bible for you. And for some of you, you're thinking, I've never even thought of stuff like this before. Some of you are thinking, it doesn't matter to me that much. It doesn't rattle my faith. And for some of you, you're thinking, yeah, I've studied this quite a bit because it bothers me. Because the Bible, like I used to just think that maybe God just threw it down from the sky in a King James version. And then I discovered the King James wasn't translated until 1611. And I thought, well, something's missing there. You know, so I start studying, where, how do we get the Bible? Where does it come from? So now I ask, you know, how do we read the Bible? How we read the Bible determines pretty much everything that we do. 
I went through and kind of made a list that determines our theology. The way we read the Bible determines how we view God. It determines ecclesiology, which is the church, the study of the church and what we do as a church, what we think is important. Our missiology, which, you know, we talk a lot about missions. The way we view missions and what types of missions are important all comes back to how we read the Bible. How we read the Bible determines our soteriology, which is the study of salvation doctrines. It determines our eschatology, how we view the end times. How we read the Bible is incredibly important. But we don't all read the Bible the same way. We have differing views. Even with this, in this church, we could take a text, we could take a verse or a chapter and read it and study it and say, here's what I think it means, and you're going to get a lot of different viewpoints. We live in the Bible Belt, and you can drive around and see all these different churches and denominations in town, and you can just think a little bit about the history and say somewhere at some point, people disagreed. So different churches were formed, different denominations were formed because we don't all read the Bible the same way. We read the Bible with presuppositions. I do this, you do this, we all do this. We, we kind of read into the text sometimes based on what we think the Bible's saying. So occasionally I try to practice spiritual disciplines where I just try to wipe all that clean and just ask God to speak in fresh ways, not ways that I think it should say, but, but what is it actually saying? So we, all, we just have these presuppositions that we bring to the text. We read with special emphasis. I've already mentioned a closed canon, but we have a canon within the canon. You know, we emphasize certain texts over others. I'm always going to lean towards the Gospels because that's the story of Jesus. Some people may take a verse here or take a verse there and say, these verses are more important than these verses. Even Jesus did that. When Jesus was asked, out of all 613 laws that we find in the Torah, uh, which one's the most important? And Jesus said, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Leviticus 19.18, the second part of that verse, love your neighbor as yourself. That's more important than the others. So even Jesus read it and placed special emphasis on certain texts. We read the Bible with topical agendas. Some of us have topics in mind, and so when we read, we want what we're reading to fit these topics. So you see, the way we read the Bible, there's a lot going into it. And there's often just things that we're not aware of. I've already mentioned our presuppositions. There's things that work in the background as we study God's Word that we don't even realize. And one of those is history. We have 1,900 years of church history that influence us and influence the way we read the Bible and influence how we apply the Bible. And we often don't even realize that. I've studied a little bit of the Church of Christ history. And we come out of the Restoration Movement. In the early 19th century, there was a man named Thomas Campbell, and he would go around and he had this statement. And it was about the Bible. Does anybody know it? Speak where the Bible speaks, and be silent where the Bible's silent. And that has influenced churches of Christ. But sometimes we get to the place where if the Bible's silent, we wind up screaming about it. It's silent, so you can't do it, and we're going to fight you over it. And, you know, so we just have these views, but a lot of that's influenced by church history. And most of the time, we're not even aware of that. There's different translations. As I've already mentioned, 
about translations. You know, I'm studying, I preach from the New Revised Standard Version, which is the, the right version. Now, I don't think, I, nobody has come up to me yet and said, hey, I went out and bought an NRSV because you preach from one. So maybe that'll happen at some point. But there's different translations. There's NIV. I study from ESV or NRSV. or There's even paraphrased versions like the message. Or we, some of you still, you know, read from the New King James. There's different versions that we read from. But the Bible wasn't written in English. Hebrew and Greek. So somebody has to take the original language and the copies that we still have and translate it into our language. So you look at the English version of the Bible and you say you're reading, in a way, somebody's interpretation of how they think it needs to be translated. That's why I always say, and I said it in our Bible class last, excuse me, our Bible community last Sunday morning, I said you need to read and study from different English translations. That's important. And there's this whole hermeneutical process, which I was in a class one time where we talked about hermeneutics, and somebody was so confused, they raised their hand and they said, who is this Herman guy? There's words like hermeneutics and exegesis and things like that that we don't, maybe don't know. It's not something we use very often, but there's just this whole process of scholars, people that are smarter than me, that take the Bible and who authored it and who they wrote it to and What's the literary style and the genre and all these different, the words that go into it? The people that have influenced the way we read the Bible. Okay, so I say all that to say when I'm a teenager and I'm studying these Bibles, I don't know any of this stuff. I'm just thinking, why is Paul so confusing? Why is some of this so difficult and some of it so easy? And it took me down this journey, a journey that I'm still on, where I decided there is a need to study the Bible, to feast on God's Word, but there's a need to do that not just alone, but to do that with the church, to do that with God's people. That's why we need, here's part three, to study the Bible as a community. Now, I want to say this just to make sure you understand what I'm saying correctly. I think devotional reading, spiritual disciplines, reading on your own is crucial to your faith. I think you need that. You need it daily. You need those spiritual disciplines. You need to study God's Word. So I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying if that's all it is, and you never studied the Bible with other Christians, with your church, with the community, then it's going to be lacking. We have to study the Bible together. And even the Bible itself gives us examples of God's people studying God's Word as a community. Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra reads the law to the faith community, and he reads it, and guess what? Some people don't understand it. So what was pre-planned is they had interpreters present. So the interpreters present could help the people understand the law because they read it together. And you flip to the New Testament, and you can look at the book of Acts, and as Church of Christ people, we love the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Because he immediately was baptized when he discovered that's what needed to be done. But before we get to the baptism, he's in his chariot and he's riding around. And somehow, there's this guy from Africa, this Ethiopian man, and he has a scroll of Isaiah and he's reading it. So the Spirit leads Philip to this chariot. And Philip just says, do you understand what you're reading? 
And he basically just says, no. How can I unless somebody teaches it to me? So he invited Philip up, and Philip got in the chariot with him and explained to him what the Scriptures meant. They studied it together. In Acts chapter 17, we always refer to the Bereans. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, Paul is going around teaching people who believe in the Hebrew Scriptures, and now he's teaching them that these have been fulfilled in Jesus, but they didn't just take Paul's word for it. What did they do? They went and they studied the Scriptures together. They did it as a community. In 2 Peter chapter 3, really verse 15 and 16, Peter mentions Paul. And he says that Paul writes in a way, and I, I love this verse because it helps me understand my problems as a teenager. Paul writes in a way that's difficult to understand. He does that intentionally. It's, it's not easy on purpose. And Peter says that some people take it and they distort it. And you want to avoid distorting what we believe is the Word of God, then read it together, study it together. The first lesson I did in January, we talked about what does it mean to be a functioning part of the body of Christ. And after some talks with our vision team and our shepherds here, we have five things that we say to be a functioning member of the Pine Tree Church of Christ. This is what we want to challenge our church with. Worship. We talked about that last Sunday. Bible community, what we're talking about this morning. Connect group, service, and discipleship. So we believe to be a part of this body is to feast on the Word of God together. So you need to be a part of a Bible community. Now some of you may be thinking, what is this word community? Why are you calling it Bible community? Why not just call it Bible class? That's what we've called it forever. Bible community kind of shifts the perspective of maybe the traditional Sunday school, we just check it off the checkbox, and it reminds us of what it's all about. Of everything we've talked about so far this morning, that Bible community is studying God's Word together as a community. And in these classrooms, we're in smaller communities studying God's Word, and we're part of the larger body, the larger community. So our challenge... Our encouragement, what we think is important for you as a member, is to commit to one of our Bible communities. We have some offered following our services this morning, Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, Tuesday mornings for ladies' Bible class. We have several options offered for you for Bible community. So we encourage you to invest in one. Now, for a lot of you, you may be thinking, well, I'm not just invested in one. I go Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, Tuesday mornings, and other options. And if that's you, that's great, and I encourage you to keep doing that. But there might be some people today that, that need to hear this in a fresh way and need to be challenged by this. And maybe you need to prayerfully con- reconsider sticking around or joining one of our Bible communities because we believe it is vital to our faith and our faith development in this church. When you study the Bible on your own, sometimes through the Spirit, God reveals insights and different perspectives to you. And when you join a Bible community, you're allowed to share those insights. I've taught a few classes so far here at Pine Tree. And every time I've taught a class, excuse me, a Bible community, I'm working on my own language of of this. 
Every time I've taught a Bible community, I study. I read commentaries. I talk to other ministers about it. And I get all these notes and these different perspectives, and then I throw it out there, and I listen to people that are in our Bible communities give their feedback, and I think, you know what? Out of all the commentaries I've read, nobody had this perspective because you're unique. And God reveals certain things to us, and we share those things together to encourage each other. But then also sometimes we kind of get off on our, a weird path, and maybe we're misreading something, and when we share it with our communities, it can help correct us and get us back on the right path. But we believe it's important to commit to being a part of a Bible community. But the Bible is not something we worship. We don't worship these words. Uh, kind of like Ezekiel or Jeremiah or even Jesus or John, we consume them, we feast on them because we believe God speaks through His Word. But that is not the sole purpose, is just to have knowledge because that was the Pharisees' problem. But the reason that we feast on the Word of God is because through the Word of God, we find Jesus. We find Jesus, and through the Word of God, through feasting on the Word of God, we have direction for our church. We have a vision. And we move forward with that vision because we're directed by feasting together on the Word of God. And through studying God's Word, we discover what we believe is the most important thing in life, and that's to know Jesus. And it's through these words that not only do you come to know Jesus, but for those of you who might be outside of Christ, it gives you the chance to have salvation through Jesus, eternal life. And we could point you in that direction. If that's where you're at this morning, come talk to me. I would be glad to share with you more about that. We feast on God's Word together, and we, we digest it together. You can't digest it all at once. That's a big feast. And I hope that every Sunday morning, like those kids in Rwanda, we walk out and we're like, man, I am full, because we just feasted together. But we can't digest it all at once, so we keep coming back, and we keep digesting God's Word together, kind of like faith communities in the past. In just a moment, Tony's going to lead us in another song, uh, and we'll stand up in just a second, and, and we're going to sing this song, and normally on Sundays we offer a, an invitation. I've already mentioned, if you want to know Christ, come up here and talk to me, or grab one of our shepherds, he'll be standing in the back, we can sit down and study with you. If you need prayers, we'll have shepherds scattered around. You can come up front, you can find a shepherd in the back, but we're going to invite you to respond in just a moment. And usually we end on something like that, and then I tell you to stand and sing. But because we're talking about the Word of God, I figured it might be appropriate to just end on the Word of God. So when I'm done reading this next scripture, after that, I'll ask you to stand, and we'll have our invitation song. But let me read Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 and 11, and then after that, you can stand. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You can stand.